0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Asian American Studies, a part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Julia Lee, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and your host for today's show. My guest today is Nima Avashia. Nima is the daughter of Indian immigrants and was born and raised in southern West Virginia. She has been an educator and activist in the Boston Public schools since 2003 and was named a City of Boston Educator of the Year in 2013. Her first book, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, was published by West Virginia University Press in March 2022. It has been called a timely collection that begins to fill the gap in literature focused mainly on the white male experience by Ms. Magazine, and A Graceful Exploration of Identity, Community, and Contradictions by Scalawag. The book was named Best LGBTQ Memoir of 2022 by Book Riot, was one of the New York Public Library's Best Books of 2022, and was a finalist for the New England Book Award, the Weatherford Award, and a Lambda Literary Award. Nima lives in Boston with her partner Laura and her daughter Kahani. I first came across Nima's book while perusing a list of Asian American memoirs that had been published in the past few years. Another Appalachia immediately caught my eye because of the geographic location that names in its title, Appalachia. As it happens, I grew up in the mountain place that Nima described so beautifully and evocatively in her memoir, The Hills of Southern West Virginia. But this is a part of the country that is normally never associated with Asian Americans or the Asian diaspora. We all know, or think we know, the places where Asians belong in this country. In cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, Vancouver, Jersey City, or New York City. Or in urban enclaves like Little Saigon, Little Tokyo, Chinatown, Little Manila, or Little India. But what if the Japanese Americans living in Iowa? or Chinese Americans in North Dakota, or Indian Americans and Korean Americans living in West Virginia? What impact do these unexpected places have on the way that these communities form? What if your experience as a person of Asian descent living in the United States is rendered doubly invisible because the place you think of as home is one that is thought to be devoid of people like you? What if the place that your parents call home is closed to you because of your unwillingness to remain silent about family histories. Another Appalachia explores these questions from a perspective that is refracted through Nima's own sense, evolving sense of unbelonging. Welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, Nima.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you today,
0: Julia. So I want to start by asking you a question that you've probably heard a lot over the years, uh, namely, how did your family end up in West Virginia? And it's usually probably asked in that way. How did you end up in West Virginia?
2: Right. It's usually preceded by there are Indian people in West Virginia. (laughs) I'm sure you've had a similar experience, right. right? right? Yeah. I mean, my family's Immigration story is actually pretty similar to a lot of folks of my generation. I'm 45. So um, my parents immigrated to the U.S. after 1965 in the hart cellar Act, um, which opened up the sort of pathways to immigration based on professional status. Um, So my father had studied uh, medicine in India, and he um, wanted to come here. And I think You know, if you asked him why, I think he felt pretty bound by like the societal norms of India and wasn't sure those are norms that he wanted to be bound to or that he wanted his kids to be bound to. Um, So he came uh, and did his residency in Queens um, at a hospital there. And at the end of residency, he was looking for jobs. And one of the caveats with that immigration law was that you were supposed to find work in in underserved areas it was designed to either staff for medical folks it was either to staff highly urban or highly rural places by and large and so when he was applying for jobs um, he saw a posting for a physician at, through union carbide corporation which was at the time one of the largest producers of chemicals and particularly pesticides in the united states and union carbide's headquarters was in manhattan Um, So he went down to headquarters and he interviewed and they said, well, there are two options for you. Um, You can go work in Seadrift, Texas, or you can go to Institute West Virginia. Um, And West Virginia was closer. And uh, so my family effectively moved because of work, which is the story of so many immigrant families, that there's not much more to it than work. And when my parents moved, there were very, very few Indian families in the Kanawha Valley. I think three families at the time that they moved. Um, so they were among the early arrivals, um, but quickly kind of became um, this sort of hub so that other folks who went to my dad's same medical school in India started to sort of come to work at the hospitals in the area. Once there were sort of known entities, it sort of became this magnet for more and more people coming. And if you talk to, they see people who immigrated to uh, to West Virginia, they'll often tell me that like the first place they had an Indian meal was at my family's house. Um because that was sort of the my parents kind of became this sort of gateway into um, into settling in in West Virginia. Um, And so by the time I was old enough to remember, um, there were about 100 families uh, living in the Kanawha Valley. Um, Largely, many of them were Gujarati, but not exclusively. And uh, and they were gathering to have Meals together, they were gathering for religious services. They they had sort of formed a very small but tight-knit community in the span of about eight years.
0: That's incredible. And I think that's, you know, that is often the the story of migration, right? It's a few families settling and then essentially serving, you know, as anchors. You mentioned your sister's anchor baby um, in the memoir, right? As anchors for the community to form around them. And so I think that's, I mean, I think that's a wonderful story. I was really um i was really moved by your opening chapter which is basically like um you take the reader on this turn by turn um journey from jaeger airport which i'm very familiar with um to your uh family's house in cross lanes um and a street called pamela circle um so I, why did you want to start your book this way? Like, why did you want to start with this kind of very geographical sort of map-oriented um, narrative?
2: Yeah, you know, I live in, in New England. I live in Boston now. And um, most people where I live have never been to West Virginia. And if they have any familiarity, often their response is like, oh, I've driven through, right? Which means they've taken 79, which is the main highway that cuts sort of from Pittsburgh down to Charleston, Um and so they don't actually know what it looks like to get off the highway They're, You know, so they'll say, oh, it's really beautiful. I drove through and it's like, well, yeah, you've seen like the way the highway curves through the mountains and that is very beautiful, um, but you don't actually know the place that I'm from. And that's sort of my general experience with people is like they don't know. And I actually think that's true writ large about people in America, which is that when you talk about places like Appalachia and the South. The majority of Americans who live outside those regions do not have familiarity with the people in those regions, but they have a lot of stereotypes about the people in those regions. Um, and they operate from those stereotypes in ways that are pretty unabashed. Like it's kind of amazing how um how okay it continues to be to just um dehumanize and stereotype Southern people and Appalachian people in this country in 2024. Um, And so I felt like if I was going to write a story about home, I really didn't want readers to be outside of it. I didn't want them to be reading from a place of judgment or from a place of distance. I wanted them to be in the car with me. I wanted them to feel like they did not have an option um, when it came to their proximity, that like I was going to force them to be as proximate as possible. And in order to do that, the first thing I had to do was put them in the car and take them home. Like they had to see what it looks like to go home and what all those markers mean and how those markers signify shifts in what has happened to our home over the past 30 years. Um, they had to see those from up close, not, not from a distance. And so I also chose to use the second person for that reason, um, right? The second person doesn't let the reader escape responsibility, like you're implicated from the beginning of the story. It's not your story, but I'm not gonna let you act like you're away from it like you're implicated in it as much as I am. And so that was really the thinking was if I'm gonna tell you about home, I need you to be there with me.
0: yeah. I I, I really noted that too the use of the second person because there is no escaping, right And so um but I was I was just uh, curious about something you said do you think that when you were writing, the book when you were writing the chapters did you have an audience in mind were you thinking I'm writing this for people who've never been to West Virginia or people who've only ever driven through West Virginia um or some combination of like folks at home right your family and then outsiders
2: I mean selfishly I'd say the first audience for this book was me um because I was in my mid thirties before I ever read a book that even remotely mirrored my experiences. And that book was Mary Jacobs graphic memoir, Good Talk, um, which she didn't grow up in West Virginia, but she grew up in small town, New Mexico. She was queer. She was asking questions about race and gender in ways that felt really important to me. But I was in my mid thirties before I saw that book. And while it was close, it wasn't the same. And the books that were being published about Appalachia um, rendered me and people like me and my family completely invisible, right? So in particular, I think about J.D. Vance's book, Hillbilly Elegy, um, which was on the New York Times for bestseller list for 54 weeks and never mentions immigrants in Appalachia, never mentions Black people in Appalachia, never mentions queer people in Appalachia, really serves to perpetuate all the stereotypes and doesn't complicate any of them. And that book came out and I was living in Boston and all these theoretically progressive people who thought they were highly educated were coming up to me and being like, Oh, I read this book about where you're from and now I understand everything about it. And I was like, Oh, you understand nothing. You understand nothing about who I am or where I'm from or the people who I love who are not rendered in this book and be totally honest. Like no one I know would throw their grandmother under the bus. And JD Vance does that again and again in his book. And I was like, I don't, I don't think this is the right rendering, but I didn't have anything to put up against it. Right. Um, and my whole life, I had just thought I was an anomaly. Like, I just thought I would always just have to explain. There's this weird thing about me. Yeah, I'm from West Virginia. I grew up in West Virginia. I'm just going to always have to explain that. And I started to think about the value of counter-narrative and how when you have a place like Appalachia that's being rendered so flat, what function can counter-narrative serve there? So yeah, my community was only 100 families and there are only like three queer this folks of my generation who I can think of, who I grew up with, right? We're not talking about big groups of people here, but is there a way in which telling the story of that small community and telling the story of the tiny intersection that I grew up at pushes back against this dominant narrative and complicates it a little bit and makes it harder for people to hold these sort of like wide stereotypes, um, that don't really afford Appalachian people, the complexity they deserve. And I like to say that, um, Even if no one reads my book, like if they just if they don't, if they look at the cover, like they're already kind of stuck Um, because the cover of the book is a really iconic um, state park in West Virginia. Pretty much every West Virginia family has a picture of themselves in front of Babcock Mill State Park. Um, It's a grist mill in the fall, except that who's in front of it in my picture is like my Desi parents and our extended sort of adopted family um, of West Virginia Desis. Uh, And if you thought West Virginia was all white people, like, you'll never think that again, even if you just only look at the cover of the book, right? Um, Somehow there's already an interruption that's happened to your narrative that feels important to me. um, Because if I can interrupt that narrative, then it makes people more willing to say, well, like, I don't know if I can accept this stereotype or this flattening that's happening or this dehumanizing that's happening. I'm not sure I can accept it because I know there's more to this place than this one single story.
0: Yeah, more to that place, but also more to the like to the Indian experience in America. Right? Absolutely. It also gets flattened in, in multiple kinds of ways. And your narrative your your memoir really beautifully evokes like the complexity, right, of of that experience. It isn't just in places like Jersey City or like, <laughs> urban enclaves like that, right?
2: Yeah. In fact, when I went to college, I really struggled because um because most of the, I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pittsburgh. Um, and most of the D.C. who were there were from Jersey, Long Island, Chicago suburbs, like the places where we traditionally expect there to be D.C.'s from that we know. Um, and they all hung out together, and they all did everything together. And I, and yet I like, I like looked like them, right? I should have felt really affirmed by their existence, and actually, I felt incredibly excluded. Um, because I had grown up in such a different context, I felt like we didn't, we didn't understand each other. Um, I had one Desi friend who was from Oklahoma. We understood each other, right? Like that was, that was the extent of sort of my feeling of connection to Desi's in college. But I think it was because even for them, there was this sort of like assumption that everyone had had an experience like they'd had. Um, they didn't even realize necessarily that there were Desi people in places like Pikeville, Kentucky or Charleston, West Virginia.
0: I want to go back to something you said, like this, your, the the question of how did you end up there? How did your family end up there? Well, there are Indians and, you know, in West Virginia. And your response, I think was really interesting. You said, oh, this is just something I'm going to have to explain for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. So can you, I mean, cause I experienced that too. Like what, what were you doing there or even growing up, you know, visiting, um, my parents, friends who lived in kind of more recognizably like Korean American places like Flushing or um, elsewhere, Um, that feeling of like defensiveness, like, yeah, you know, uh, because your experience is being rendered invisible by the very people that you think would understand you. Right.
2: Um, So just talk about like the dynamic of that question and then your your response to it. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a way in which anytime someone asks that question, what it means is they don't see you because effectively what they're saying is I don't believe you. I don't believe that your experience could exist. I don't believe that your experience is valid. And so you feel like you just have to continually assert the validity of your growing up, um, in a way that, um, feels unfair. Like it feels like, why can't we just accept that there are have been Chinese families in the Mississippi Delta for over 130 years. Like, why is that so hard for us to get our heads around? Like, we can accept diversity in all kinds of places, but we can't accept it in rural places. Um, uh, it, and, um, and it is a distinct upbringing. Like, I absolutely think that there are ways in which who I am is so deeply shaped by where I grew up. And I feel like what people are basically saying is like, well, that experience doesn't matter, (laughs) or that experience doesn't have validity. Um, And and so I think that's where the right because I could just let it go, but I don't let it go. I always feel the need to like respond to it, and I think it is because of that because it invalidates what I know to be like a lot of people's experience. Um, If we did the math, you probably know this math better than I do about Asian Americans in rural spaces, but it's not a small number of people
0: no and it's growing like in the south particularly yep.
2: um, that is that
0: is the sort of where all the growth is happening in terms yes. of um Asian Americans and like you said there's a long history of actually Asians living in these places all across America right yes. but we've come to associate um Asian diaspora with the coasts or you know with New York City or these particular places so um I'm going to ask you a question now. this really loaded one. There's no easy answer yeah. to this because um, your book and many, it's many things, but one of the things I think it is, is a rumination on the meaning of the word home yeah. and the feeling of home, right? Um, and so your is a, a chapter where your mother says like home is where your family is, right? Where, where you discover your parents are going to leave the state essentially. Yeah. Um, and by that definition, she considers India to be her home. That's right. right. Live there for decades and decades. Um, you talk about it in a much more conflicted way, right? As a combination of things, um, but also a sense. You use this word of missingness. Um, so, can you can you talk about where you consider home to
1: be, and and what that notion of like missingness is about? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it? <clears throat>
2: Yeah, um, I have a a mentor, Gita Kotari. She's a professor at Pitt. And she likes to tell me that nostalgia is a disease and I am deeply afflicted. Um, And she is not afflicted by nostalgia, lucky her. Um, But I do think there is a lot of nostalgia in my book. um, That home is a time or a period in time that I'm trying to sort of like find all the time, but I can't find it. Um, I'm always chasing it and never finding it. And so for a long time, I think even when I was writing the book and when I released the book even, I sort of felt like home had become like a construct in my mind. My parents don't live in West Virginia anymore. Um, Most of the DC families who I grew up with, their kids don't live there. They have also left. Most of the white West Virginian families that I was close to, a lot of folks are passing away or moving. Um, So like, there's not like a place I can concretely go and be like, this is my home and yet something really interesting that happened in the context of publishing this book is like finding home again um which is to say that every time i hear from a reader who says to me like i found comfort in this book i found solace in this book i didn't know someone else shared my questions until i read this book like home exists again in that space between us because it's like oh they're looking for this thing too like this thing isn't just a construction in my mind this is a thing that collectively many of us experience and are grieving the loss of and are trying to figure out how do we help one another find that care and that collective sense of well-being and community like how do we come back to that place uh that for me is Pamela's circle, but is actually, you know, both deeply Appalachian and deeply immigrant in its roots, which is, I think there's a great Appalachian writer named Ann Pancake, who talks about this idea of the kinship economy in Appalachia. And she says, you know, Appalachian people know nobody's coming to save them. And so if I have something and you need it, I'm going to give it to you because I know when I need something, if you have it, you're going to give it to me because we're not going to get it from somewhere else. And when she said that, I was like, that is also so profoundly immigrant culture, right? These are two communities that both live on the margins of American society, and they both understand that in order to survive, we we only have one another. Um, that feeling, I think, is the thing that I keep trying to find. Um, but I'm not alone in trying to find it. And so home in some ways has become the group of people who are all kind of on this quest to sort of recreate or rebuild that sense of, um, indebtedness to one another that I think politicians are very invested in eroding right now. They don't want us to belong to each other and they don't want us to care for one another in those ways. And I, yeah, I think, I think it's always evolving, but I think that's how I think about home now is it's the group of people who are, who are trying to unearth this thing that we, we felt we know exists and we know can exist again that's i mean i think that's really powerful right if nostalgia is
0: a disease i think the worst thing that can happen is that you actually can go home like that right that's the danger of nostalgia is this idea i can i can go home again and when you you talk in your book about going back and you talk about cross lanes as needle city and um the kind of disrepair right that your childhood street has fallen into there is a recognition there you can't go home, right? That right. that home has to be something else now or, or you know, our time and place. But, you know, how do you reconstitute home, right? When there's no place that you can really go back to. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you because you mentioned, um, you talk about your father, right? Uh, and you talk about um, father figures in from your childhood. Uh, but you you talk about your father with this very evocative phrase two evocative phrases i'd say one is um company man right yeah. because he worked for carbide um, and was a defender kind of of chemicals and the wonderful thing that like um that uh chemical technology can like do for people's lives um and you also talk about ethics of place which is i think what you were just talking about as well yeah. another version of it um and these ideas really strongly influence both you and your father you yep. say you have very different approaches right to to what those terms might mean so can you just talk about that relationship that relationship with your father and that kind of sense of him you're both you say at various points like he's a company man and And you are not, right? You thought you were a company man, but then it turns out you're not. Um, in your role as educator, um, an activist. So can you just talk about those phrases and and your relationship with your father?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think my dad, and I think a lot of this is generational. Like, I think that um, when I think about my parents, their their critique of America, of white supremacy, of capitalism, of all those things, like it is you know, they've been here 50 years and I feel like they're starting to get it. Um, because they've been here long enough now to be like, oh, like these things don't change or these things keep happening. Or, you know, like we can't just write these things off as individual microaggressions. Like we can see the patterns in the systems. Whereas when you're the kid of immigrants, I think those things become clear to you much more quickly. School, I think, plays a big role in helping you learn very quickly that uh, systemic racism is real and we're living in the context of it all the time. But I think that what that meant for my dad initially is like he was so clear about the fact that carbide was affording us all of this opportunity right like he was able to buy a house he was able to put us through school he was able to change his family's economic status in india because of the work he was doing there and he did see lots of benefits as somebody who grew up In a country where malaria was killing hundreds of thousands of people, when he sees pesticides, he understands that like, well, actually, these things address that issue, right? He's very pragmatic in those ways. I think... And Carbide actually as an institution was kind of different than too. So Carbide had like Carbide camp every summer that the kids of Carbiders could go to for free and then go horseback riding. And they sponsored ice skating at the Charleston Civic Center once a week. Every Sunday, Carbide families could go to do that. There was a sort of like benevolent employer vibe that they were trying to sort of like put off that I think is actually very related to coal mining and a similar pattern in the mines where it's like we get people's loyalty by doing these things even if we're exploiting them in the land at the same time i don't think he could see that even though for a really long time um and i think he also didn't really have the privilege of being able to because he needed the job um there wasn't a safety net so if that job went away like there wasn't anything else for us or again for all these people in india who's you know, he was paying for school, he was paying for different things to sort of support them with the checks he was getting from the plant. And that meant that I think even if he had a critique, uh, he wasn't going to share it. Um, But truthfully, I think he was a pretty ardent, like I've read a lot of his, he was a very, um, very, very prolific op-ed writer. He wrote a lot for the Charleston Gazette, talking about what he thought the chemical industry was doing for the valley. And at the time when he was writing, like he wasn't wrong. Like it was offering people social mobility. It was changing economic outcomes for people. It was also poisoning the water and the air and giving lots of people cancer. Those things can be true at the same time, right? And so I think my dad chooses to sort of like live in one of those truths. And I kind of am trying to hold both of them and say like, you know, they both can exist. And it's really interesting because it's a place where a lot of white Appalachian folks have found resonance in the book, which is this idea that the thing that is feeding you is also killing you. Um, that is a very shared understanding among people in Appalachia, regardless of their racial background, because it is a thing that is when you live in a place where extractive industries are the dominant economic force, like that is what's happening all the time. Um, I think for me, I saw the way my dad worked and in a lot of ways I wanted to embody it. You know, my dad was like, I don't know, like a minor celebrity in our town, you know, like he couldn't go anywhere without people wanting to see him, wanting to talk to him. He went to every funeral, every wedding, like he was very embedded in the community because of his work at the plant. And I sort of understood work as being the way my dad worked, Um, but when I became a teacher and I worked in a system that I I could see the harm that the system was doing, I couldn't hold the loyalty that he held. Um, I, I I couldn't, I, I could tolerate the risk of losing my job. And and the harm felt to me like it outweighed the good by so much that like I, I couldn't be a company man in the way that he was. Um, and I think that was hard for him. I think he felt like I was taking risks that I shouldn't take. I think he felt like I needed to keep my head down. And I couldn't um, because there were young people who were being harmed by the system I worked in. And if the choice was going to be between the system and the young people, like I was going to pick the young people.
0: I mean, you you also talk about in the context of, of your relationship with Mr. B, right? In- the, the the mentor, like the grandparent figure, the grandfather figure um, who whose wife passes away. And then you see his social media posts, which are... Filled with kind of anti-immigrant hateful rhetoric, um, and you know the you talk about how you snooze him right, like on yeah. on Facebook, um, and and um, that that is a difficult like the questions you have from him, you, I mean, he's very elderly. I think you say he's over 90 at this point. Yeah. And so um, it felt very much like those chapters, I think, are near each other in the book, near the big, first half of the book. And so they felt like very much ruminations on similar kinds of topics, like similar things, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what you owe your community um, and when to keep silent and when you feel like you can't keep silent. So I thought that was really powerful.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I think... Um... I certainly think gender plays a role in that. I think generation plays a role in it. I think there are many variables, right? Like I think um South Asian women aren't supposed to have opinions. Never mind, say them out loud. Never mind, write them. So like the distance that I had to travel and even in order to write those essays was a lot of there was a lot of distance to travel there. Um and I think that when I was writing, what felt really important to me is that I held both of those people who are very important to me and I care about a ton, but also I have questions about like, how do you hold them with grace? Like, can we ask questions without canceling people or condemning them or ostracizing them? Like, is it possible to sort of like understand what is under someone's choices? And in the case of chemical bonds, I think what was under a lot of my dad's choices was survival. And in the case of the blue red divide, I think what's under a lot of Mr. B's choices is grief. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of grief to be felt about what has happened to home. Um, and I think we might disagree about the causes of what's happened, but the grief is shared. Like we don't disagree about the conditions in the place where, where I grew up and where he grew up. Um, and like what's happened, like that is a shared space. So like, how do we use that shared space to try to build some understanding, um, instead of just being like. I don't agree with you. You're over here. I'm over here and we're done. Which again, feels to me like a lot of the moment that we're in um, is just like, pick a side, pick a corner, stand there. Um, and I really struggle because I just don't see where we go from there.
0: Yeah. I think that's really powerful. I mean, can I ask you, why did you decide to become an educator? Like how did that, how did that path open up to you?
2: Yeah. Um, I, I, So unlike most of my peers, I did not do great in school. Um, I struggled in school a lot. I wasn't like a great student. My sister is seven years older than I am. And she was like, you know, she was like a very good student. And then my experience of school was everyone always being like, why are you not your sister? Um, But yeah, school didn't work very well for me. Um, I was like curious and I enjoyed learning, but I did not enjoy the trapping of school. And particularly because I think unlike my sister. So when my sister was in high school seven years before me, there was a small group of, of Indian students who all were there together. Um, When I went to school, there were only three of us. Um, And so we were very racially isolated. Um, I was sort of the most visible in a lot of ways. I played sports like I, and so I also attracted a lot of pretty intense racism because of the environments I was putting myself in. Um, And yeah, I, I just was kind of a mediocre student and kind of just bumbling along. Um, But there were a couple of teachers who really like went out of their way to sort of hold space for me and mentors too. I talk about um, earlier in the book, Carl Bradford, who's my basketball coach, right. Who just like kept showing up and showing up and showing up over the course of years of being like, I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. And the power of that coach and those few teachers who kind of committed in that way to sort of being like, these are long-term relationships and like, we're gonna sort of like help you get through this thing that is clearly hard for you. Um, It was pretty transformative, right? Like it made a huge impact on me. And I think that when I was trying to figure out what to do for work, like that, that idea that like, if you build a relationship with a young person that is sustained where you stay with them over the course of time like you can actually really bend their their trajectory in ways that um can be life changing for them um it felt really powerful to me it felt like that is the work i wanted to do um And that's kind of what led me into education. I mean, I feel like everything about who I am as a teacher, like I own a Carl Bradford, right? Like that's how I thought about teaching, which isn't how most people think about teaching, but it is how I understood it because of how he modeled, like what it means to be in a young person's life. Um, And that, that in some ways felt like the space to me where I could like embody like the parts of Appalachian culture that feel like the best parts. I actually felt like teaching was a space where I could be that person. My kids didn't necessarily recognize that as Appalachian, but like I knew that that way of sort of caring for people and being in community people with people was very much shaped by where I grew up.
0: That was one of the most unexpected and I think loveliest parts of the book is your relationship with that basketball coach yeah. um, and how you know, you describe yourself as like profoundly unathletic and, (laughs) and, and, but you (laughs) have for basketball and, um, his advice to, to the Wilt Chamberlain, right. Yeah. yeah. It was underhanded and you made a basket. Um, and I was just curious, what, what made you go out for basketball? Like I, you know, unathletic little kids everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's wonderful that you were like, I want to do this thing that not only is, um, you know, I stand out because I'm, you know, South Asian, but also because I'm a girl, like they they were, they were girls league. So why, why,
2: why did you decide to do that? I mean, I was so little, it's like hard for me to even know, right? Like I think part of, I mean, partly I grew up on a street where like there were like four basketball hoops on our street going down. Right. So it was like just what everyone was doing in the neighborhood all the time was part of it. But I also think Some of it must've been like this sort of like recognition that like I had to figure out, like my sister had really struggled. School was really hard for her too. There were lots of people who were very racist. She had really chosen to do like individual activities. Like she was a majorette. She swam. Um, Those things don't necessarily build community in the same way. And I think I was really trying to figure out how I was going to survive that context without getting beaten up quite as badly as she had. And it seemed to me like figuring out like a community or a space like team sports might help. Um, And I think that's part of what was driving was like being like, can I find like a space or a community that's gonna buffer me a little bit from all of this that's happening all the time?
0: Okay, yeah, that's really, I mean, I, I just, I thought that was very unexpected. And, you know, a little sad because I feel like now in this, you call it like the pre-hyper competitive era where, you know, a scrawny little kid could go out for yeah. the as opposed to now which is like everybody yeah. needs and it's so hyper-professionalized and it costs a fortune Yeah, um that's not possible in lots of places now which is which is terrible um so i wanted to ask you about uh, a chapter later in the book where you refer to yourself as an only generation appalachian yeah right? some people are like third generation fourth generation you're eighth
2: like generation. eighth generation
0: yes generation i'm only generation yeah. <laughs> um And so, and this is the context, this is in the context of your acceptance at the Appalachian Writers Workshop in, in, um, in Kentucky. Um, So do you consider yourself an Appalachian writer? Like, is that a, is that a, is that a, is that a label that you're comfortable with? Um,
2: So I wasn't when I was writing um and that's why that essay exists is because i was like i don't even know like i never knew like can i claim that term like does it apply to me right um but a couple things happened one is that in the process of writing the book i met other appalachian writers who recognized the appalachianness in my writing and would talk about it and help me see the connections between my writing and other appalachian writers in a way that like i didn't I couldn't see. So Anne Pancake, who I mentioned earlier, she talks about the idea that in Appalachian writing, um, place is a character. Like place has as much salience and as much relevance as any individual character in the story. And that's absolutely true in my book. Um, Place is a character, right? Like she kind of was able to draw those literary connections that sort of helped me to see where my book falls in relation to the broader set of Appalachian literature. That helped me. I think the other things um, that have helped me have been being being in conversation with Appalachian writers and understanding that so many of our questions are shared questions, right? We're asking about the same things. We're grappling with the same issues. So while I didn't set out to sort of like say I was an Appalachian writer or think I was necessarily like the, the book that resulted is an Appalachian book, um, which I guess it's sort of like the proof is in the pudding, right? It's like those characteristics of place, the way that it shapes us, the way that it informs the way we think, the way we view things, the way we write, like it's all in there, whether I intentionally put it in or not, it's there. Um, And so it has been easier to claim that title also because there are some really powerful things happening in Appalachian now. Like um, I think the word Appalachian feels tight even to people who live there and have lived there for generations, it sometimes feels like they don't know if they can claim the word, right? So queer people in Appalachia call themselves fabulachian, right? So it's like, how do I sort of acknowledge my queerness in the context of this place, right? There are all these, I read about Afroalachian poets who are Black and Appalachian and want to assert their their Black identity and their Appalachian identity at the same time. Seeing those models of people say, no, we don't have to pick, it's not one or the other. Like we can be all of these things at the same time. I think has made it easier for me to say, "Yeah, I also can be more than one thing at the same time." You say Indolation, right? Yeah. I
0: mean, yeah, yeah. And you have that chapter where you talk about um, uh, recipes and spices and the yep. ways in which you know you adapt, like how your mother found all these things, or your your community, Indi- the Indian community, found all these things and they were able to create, right? yeah adapt adapt, adapted right to the to the to the specificity of the place I mean in in over reading your book in reading your book and then over the course of this conversation I really I'm really struck actually by the kind of overlap the kinds of issues that and I don't know Appalachian writing very well at all I mean you know I'm I'm from there and yet like you I'm 50. I, I don't know that I've read that many Appalachian um, stories or books. Right. It's, it's ironic because we don't read them in in Appalachia. That's as right. Well. That's right. Um, and so um, but I think I really see like that kind of that idea of place, right? That di- idea of ethics of care, like ethics of place and kind of the issues that immigrant or uh, migrant communities are confronting are very similar. Right. Um, to <clears throat> to the ones that you're raising in your book and I I'm I I find that really striking um and powerful like a powerful frame for understanding the diverse experiences of people living in Appalachia Um, yeah
2: yeah and actually right that there's shared space I have like this Venn diagram in my head of queerness immigrant culture and Appalachian culture. And like, there's so much overlap. But if you told anybody, like if I were to say, like, I actually think these communities are more similar than they are different, people would laugh at me. But they actually are because they're all marginalized groups. And effectively, when you live on the margins, like the ways in which your culture and community are shaped by the need to survive and by like the fact that that is what you're trying to do all the time like there are only a certain set of survival strategies that any of us have and so those those survival strategies are the center of the Venn diagram like they're shared across the spaces and that to me like and this is like you know an optimism that I don't even feel like I like I think it's my no one else has it but like I feel like if we could get people to sort of see that shared space if what politicians and leaders were doing was being like look at the shared space look at the shared space like i feel like we'd be in such a different place as a country um i think that so much of where we are is because people are just being pitted against each other based on geography based on race based on sexuality based on all the things it's like how do we use these things to exploit and divide and exploit and divide um but like i actually really can see the shared space maybe because i live in that that's where i live that's my Right. Yeah. That's I like. That's I have to be able to put those parts of my identity together. And so I can recognize where where there is coherence there. Right. I see that in the in the book, because you talk about, you know,
0: bringing Laura home um, or Laura visiting and the ways in which you don't feel comfortable, you know, um, sharing about your she's a friend or, you know, the the ways and then the kind of the surprise, your own surprise at how accepting people are or yeah. like, hey, okay people are with it. Um to a certain extent. And so, you know, I see that in your narrative, like you're highlighting, like this isn't, this doesn't, I'm sure there have been instances where people have said horrible homophobic things, but um, your decision to say, okay, she's part of this space too, right? right. Um, I think it's really telling and powerful. So, yep. yeah. Um. So last question, it's a little bit of an annoying question, but what are you working on now? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: um. I have a 15 month old. So the biggest thing that I'm working on is parenting a 15 month old and having a full-time job. Those two things are um, take up lots of time. Um, Before she was born, I was working on a set of essays that were called like the book of broken rules that were about interrogating sort of like the rules that I was raised with and thinking about what happens when you sort of like hit midlife and you're like, these rules don't work and they don't serve us Um, since she was born. I don't I'm not working on that anymore. What I've been writing really are like uh flash pieces and fragments that are about parenting, uh what like what this early time is like and just trying to really capture the questions and feelings associated with this time. So they're tiny, tiny like two hundred-word fragments, six hundred-word piece, um, but there are a lot of them. And so I'm just going to kind of see where they go um, and see, like, is there sort of um a body of work around, uh, you know, being a queer family and parenting a biracial child, like thinking about questions of, like, geography and generation and race and all those things that are going to come out through this writing. Have you
0: been able to take your daughter to West Virginia or, or no? Oh, yeah,
2: <laughs> she she went four times in her first year of life. Uh- okay so So that'll be part of her about
0: her childhood too in some way yes
2: you know it's funny because my parents would always take me to India back to like their childhood home and I'd be like why are we here and now I'm like oh I'm doing the same thing to my kid
0: that's lovely though that's wonderful well I really want to thank you for um talking with me today um the book title is uh, another Appalachia coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place from West Virginia University Press. Thank you so much, Nima. It was a wonderful conversation.
2: Thank you, likewise.